0: Here's a keynote presentation that I did for the Golf Academy of America in Orlando, Uh, some third semester students there who are aspiring to get into the golf industry, whether it's as a golf instructor, golf course operators, or other areas, so they're learning about the business. I'm pretty sure you'll find some interesting insights about where the industry is going, what golf course owners need to really be concerned about in the next 10 or 15 years, and also why we believe that golf lessons should be absolutely free. Enjoy it, guys. This is Golf Essentials with Casey Bork. Casey
1: is, he, you probably have the most dynamic and unique background of any PGA professional I've ever met. Um and yes, yeah, so I'm gonna do Facebook Live once I step away too. Is that cool? Oh yeah? Uh, yeah, that's fine. All right. Fine. Um he's gonna he's he's open game to talk about whatever you guys want to talk about, but he's gonna start off with doing a little bit of his his background and bio. And I do with these guys want you to get in a little bit of the playing stuff because that's intriguing okay. to a lot of guys that haven't met you. Okay. Um so I I'll save I'll save the rest of the time for him to talk about stuff. A lot of these guys need to take off about quarter of eleven or so, so that's probably where we're going to wrap stuff up. Okay. Cool. Cool. All right. I got your website up if you want that for
0: anything. Uh, probably nah. Not.
1: Yeah. Probably not. That picture off there though. <laughs>
0: um. So. I, I All right. So um, how many, how many of you guys are here for instruction? Like. Want to get into instruction? A couple of you. How about operations? Right. How About the few of you that just don't give a shit and want to play free golf. <laughs> that's <There you> go. <laughs> candid. Cool. Um, yeah. So I, I want to do some Q and A, and I think that's good because you know some of you guys are going to be heading out. Uh, so I want to get into that. But before, Brendan wanted me to talk a little bit about the back, my background. I think it's pretty diverse, there's been some different things in my career, some some, some moves and uh, that I think you guys will find interesting and, and hopefully it will add some context to a couple of things I want to also talk about, industry stuff and um, another topic that I've been real big on lately is that, uh, I'll just throw it out there, I think that the, the traditional way of delivering golf lessons, the traditional methods of teaching, I think is broken, and um, I want to get into that and how it relates to how facilities are able to compete, and and uh, so I'll, I'll get into that, but I want that to be the avenue that maybe is food for thought for the Q&A, because ultimately I, I want to give you guys as much value as I can, and so whatever you guys want to ask me about, I'm cool with fielding, whatever questions. Okay, so. Um, I grew up in Maine, not exactly a hotbed for golfers, you know, Um, I grew up in southern Maine, I played all kinds of sports, I I gravitated towards golf when I was, you know, 13, 14, I played ice hockey, baseball, and golf became a passion so much where, man, in, in the winter, so when I was a senior in high school, I... I was, I was pretty decent at baseball. You know, I was, I was on the varsity team, pitcher, shortstop sort of thing. And I quit baseball my senior year. All my buddies were pissed off because I, I was really passionate about golf and I wanted to dedicate my energy to that. And so in Maine, when snows three feet high, I would go out to the beach when it was like 20 degrees, wind howling, just to see the ball fly. Like I'd, I'd get out of school and I'd go out there by myself Freezing cold and just ripping balls up the beach. I'd bring like fifty balls, hit them up the beach, hit them back. You know, high tide was a real narrow fairway, and <laughs> low tide was nice and firm. And I mean, I'm hitting drivers and stuff out there. So, real passionate about golf, and, and turns out that that work that I invested really paid off. I I won the state amateur championship when I was 18. So that summer after I graduated high school, um, I was the second youngest to win that tournament. And as I was thinking about, well, prior to that, I had applied to colleges, and I didn't know how that system went. And after I won the AM, the coach at Florida Southern College, which is where I eventually ended up, he called me. He read it in Golf Week magazine that I had won the tournament. I was going to walk on down here. And he called me up and said, Case, why don't you let me know? You know? It, I don't have a scholarship for you, but you should have called me. I didn't even know that you're supposed to reach out to coaches, you know? But anyway, you put me on the team, and I played there for four years. Very mediocre golfer in college. I I fought the yips. I came down here, you know, playing on bentgrass up, up north, coming down here, playing on Bermuda. It just drove me insane. Uh, I, I mean, I'd I come down here, and I would freak out over a one-foot uh I was I, I would define it as being just insanely nervous about anything with a flat stick. And this was really really hard on me because I went back that summer after my freshman year in college. I went back and now I'm the defending champion for the State AM, right? You know, big fish in a really little pond in Maine and you know, so many people had so many expectations for me and and I, I probably just handled it bad, you know? I put too much pressure on myself. And and I went to a tournament in Western Pennsylvania called the Sunny Hannah Hannah Amateur. It's an invitational tournament. The minimum requirement to play in that tournament is you have to win your state amp, or you've gotta kick ass, some some other way to get on a radar screen, you know? And we drove 10 hours. My dad and I drove 10 hours there, played the first round. I hit like 13 or 14 greens and shot 82. And the next day was 36 holes of just, for me, it was torture, honestly. So we went to a pizza joint that night, and I was paired with James Driscoll the next day. You probably heard that name. Um, good player, played on the PGA Tour for a while. And I sat down with my dad, and for the first time, I, I was, like, really honest with him. I said, Dad, if it rains tomorrow, which it was supposed to do, I'm I'm done. Let's... Let's drive home. I'm not playing in the AM. I'm just not. I'm not going to play in college. I'm. I'm just done. I'm. I'm just stressed, you know. And to the max. And I don't know what happened. Like I didn't get rid of the yips, but the next day, for 36 holes, I shot even par, and hung in there, you know. And, and I don't know. Just like being honest with myself and getting that out and knowing. <laughs> I come from an awesome, awesome family. Like, Not awesome by way of like throwing money at me and all this, but awesome in the way of if I want to go at something, they're all for it. If I want to quit and do something else, they're all for it. And I think that's super cool. you know. Um, but that, that was a, an incredible moment for me, thinking back to that when I was standing on the first tee at Chinnecock Hills in the U.S. Open. I, I literally had to wipe eyes, uh, wipe tears from my face, knowing that I was literally one rainy day from quitting. And it sounds it sounds dramatic. It sounds like a movie, but I I swear to you, it's true. Um, so I played very mediocre in college. I played in roughly half the tournaments in college. And when I got out, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I took a job with a guy named John Brown, who. Uh, Subsequently later started Brown Golf Management. I don't know if you've ever heard of that company, but um, I worked with him at a couple different private private clubs. You know, the, the cliche find a find a boss, not a job. I'm I'm absolutely the model of that. I, I worked at a couple different NICE facilities. He is the kind of guy that he he hires people that he believes can do the job and then he frees you up to do the work and if there's a, a teaching point afterwards he'll, he'll come to you on it but you know for instance my first year as an assistant pro at Brookside Country Club in, in Allentown Pennsylvania there was a tournament and there was a, a challenge with a tiebreaker or something at the end and there was you know people pissed off or whatever and I went to him he's the GM and I'm, I'm an assistant pro I went to him and said John how do I handle this what do I do and this is the deal he says Case, decide, make a decision. I don't care what you decide. If I'll support it. So if somebody is grumpy about it, I'll I'll get behind you on it. But don't come with, me. Go, don't come to me with this shit. Like you know, and I think that's super cool to work with somebody like that. Um, so I I worked at a club. We went after two years. He brought me with him. It was just he and I. We opened the club in Wolfboro, New Hampshire, called Lake Winnipesaukee Golf Club. And it was a pile of dirt, a thirty million dollar project by a single owner and he wanted to build one of the nicest private clubs in the country and he did it was uh, it was the eighth best private club in the country the year it opened and we were there with a pile of dirt trying to market memberships, build policies procedures build build the entire club culture for two years and I stayed there and helped him out for the first winter with snow up to here. I remember driving, the clubhouse sits way up on the top of this hill, and I remember driving in like pure darkness up in, in a snowstorm up into the clubhouse because before they renovated it, I put a golf net in there and I was able to hit some balls. And <laughs> I, I just went up there by myself and cranked some music and pounded balls. And, so the next winter, and this goes back to like working with a guy that's cool and that, that a that is looking out for your interests. He says, Case, I mean, you're a tremendous help. I need you up here, but it's just not, it's not a good thing for you to be hibernating up here in the winter. We need to get you you down south and get you playing. And I had been playing in some section stuff and doing some decent things. So he sent out a a letter to the members that we had recruited and he, he raised me 30 grand to come down and live and practice and play in West Palm Beach. And that's what I did. I came down, and decided to jump into a Canadian Tour qualifier. Went out and played all right, and earned a Canadian card. And uh, and I went out and played for a couple years. And that wouldn't have happened, right? I didn't. I didn't come from a lot of money. It wouldn't have happened without a guy like John. And so, I get out there. I played. A few tournaments on the Canadian tour made about half the cuts and that summer is when I qualified for the open and so by the way the investors that I had in that group were crazy like one of one of the guys was the like Richard Marriott the <laughs> patriarch of the Marriott family uh, one of the original four of Microsoft <laughs> was in this group and we were and we were selling and yeah, it's like a who's who of CEOs up there uh, off around Lake Winnebago in the summer. If you've ever seen What About Bob, that's where that's where the movie is. <laughs> All right, maybe one of you. Um, so my my investor pool was a group of awesome, awesome people, and we were selling shares of me for five hundred dollars. Like, come on, guys, you can How throw more than five hundred dollars at. Mm-hmm. How many shares were you worth? Yeah, probably less than what I got. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, I kind of knew, like, I, everybody wants to go out and do that thing and try to play. I knew that the odds of me making a, a big return on their investment was pretty small. So every week when I was traveling and playing, I, at the time it was email. I wrote a, a fairly long email about my travels, how I played, who I played with, uh, you know I bogeyed the last hole and missed the cut or whatever or um, and they could live a little bit vicariously through me and, and turns out that that was a really good way to deliver value for the few dollars that they gave me and they all appreciated it I ran out of money after a couple of years um, and sort of got to the point I like to say I got I got good enough a, at golf to realize how much I suck
1: <laughs>
0: you know I, I got into the US Open. Later I got in, I played in Vegas and I actually made the cut at a PGA Tour event. So I made a check with the PGA Tour logo on it. But these are little one-offs, right? This is like a week where I'm feeling really good and I'm playing against guys that are playing every week and a good portion of them aren't on the top of their game, right? They're they're ebbs and flows and so me at my best was sneaking in right at the cut line, you know. Uh, so I took, a couple, I took a job at, at Hague Point near uh, South Carolina and hated that job. I was a membership director there, I hated it. I proposed to my wife who was German on the beach of Hilton Head and that gave me an out. I ended up going out to Germany for six months and because she had to go there for her fiance visa. So coming back into the country we could move anywhere and I had an inroad at with Troon, out at the Phoenician in Scottsdale, Arizona. So I took an assistant job out there, we moved out to Scottsdale, worked there for a couple of years, and then (laughs) John Brown resurfaces at, at Moon Valley Country Club, which is a nice private club out there, used to be owned by Ping, it's where Annika shot her 59, and John became the GM there, and the director of golf was leaving, and he says, Case, why don't you come be our director of golf? And that was, a, that was another really cool opportunity, right? So, John sort of moved me into these roles that, you know, at the time I was probably underqualified, but, you know, at the same time, I, was, I think I was reliable for him and a support structure for him, and I think I was delivering value for him as well. So, I worked there for three years until one Saturday I came in, demo day, crowded driving range, lots going on. And uh, the GM, who was not John at the time, invited me into his office and said, Case, and this, by the way, was November of 09. So the market was doing this, right? The GM brought me in my, into the office and said, Case, I'm sorry, we have got to let you go. That's it. Paid me for two weeks, done deal. Like, good luck to you. And my approval rating there was high. I still go back there. I was just back there last week. I walk in and they had actually just lost their HP <laughs> a couple of days earlier. And I ran into some old members who were like, are you coming back to work? You know, they really, like, <laughs> no, I'm not coming back. Uh, but yeah, man, I had just bought a house. Mm. We had wow. just had a daughter a year earlier. So I went from I'd <clears throat> be making a little over 100 with the teaching and the playing and all that, to the best I could find was $12 an hour with the stipulation that I wasn't permitted to teach or supplement that, because there were already teachers that, at the club, 12 bucks an hour. And, uh, so I made a, a very quick decision, I, I came home, I was broken up, right? This is my life, this is all I've been doing, and I, I came home, I was broken up and I I broke the news to my wife and two minutes later, we were laughing. Like she was happy that I got let go. Turns out without me realizing it, (laughs) I was just working, I was gone all the time. I was not able to help out at nights with my daughter and I was just not being a good husband, a good father. I didn't know this, you know, and man, you know, it was it was a complete shift from what I expected driving home before breaking that news to her. I thought I was being the provider, right? Like being, I thought I was doing what was right. And it turns out, you know, she was straight up. She said, I don't think we'd be married if if you stayed there for, for all that <laughs> much longer, you know? I, I just wasn't doing doing what was right. And so that was, that was the fork in the road in my career. That's where my career moves from sort of traditional stuff, assistance, teaching, operations, director of golf, to what I'm doing now. And what I'm doing now, I, I needed that first part. I needed to be in the trenches. I needed to be executing. I needed to be learning and, and empathizing with, with what it's like to be there. But The, the thing that I'm doing now is all kinds of things so I (laughs) this was like a week after I ended up going out to true north with my wife I had the idea I wanted to do some some golf instruction videos and put them on YouTube. YouTube was just getting cranked up and I did like five videos threw them up on YouTube and a month later I, uh, I got an email from YouTube saying hey you're getting enough views you want to you want to advertise? Or you want to monetize the videos? Sure, whatever. A month later, hey, you've made enough money. We're gonna send you a check. Cool, whatever. <laughs> I look at the check. And it's 140 dollars for the month, and I'm like, whoa, that was pretty cool for a little afternoon. And it turns out that keeps coming, you know. And uh, so I did some other videos. And fast forward the tape a year or so, I uh, I wrote a book. I wrote The Beginner's Guide to Golf. I have sort of my own website with a compilation of a lot of the things that I've done and it serves as an online presentation of who I am and where I've come from and what I've been doing. Which, by the way, I I honestly, and I've I've made the presentation in here before, I I honestly believe that, you know, GAA may not like this statement, but I, I really feel like you guys are being underserved coming here, investing all this energy, all this work that you're doing, and not documenting it. Right, like you're doing these really cool projects and you know, writing business plans and budgeting and demonstrating these skills, and those projects are either being <coughs> thrown in the trash, right, or they're saved on some back reaches of some hard drive somewhere, Where whereas I feel like these, these four, sem- four semesters you guys are here, right? Yeah. I, I feel like that could be a killer ramp-up time for you guys to be documenting all of this stuff so that when you hit the ground running, when you get out of here, not, you're not just leaving here with a, a credential, so to speak. You're leaving here with some momentum, all the relationships that you have, right? I'm talking social presence. I'm, so, I'm talking about having your own public-facing website yeah. that showcases what the hell you've been doing. Why not, right? And that's, that's where the world is going. You know, if you're not online, if you're not, if you're not findable and you're not easily found online and, and it's not thorough and it's not demonstrating an extended track record, as we move forward, a paper resume doesn't mean shit. You're not even going to get, get the opportunity to hand over your paper resume if you're not out there. You know, um, and it doesn't doesn't need to be creating new stuff. It's just documenting what you guys are already doing. You're in a perfect position for that. And so I've run out a couple pop flies. I ran, I, I created a, a service uh, that I thought would be marketable to you guys or even the school as a whole, and um, you know, sort of fallen on deaf ears. And that's okay. I get it. And so back to Aftermoon Valley. I went off on a little tangent there. Back to after Moon Valley, (laughs) my wife has always been in graphic design and web development and she's from Germany, she has a, a nice track record, she worked with companies like Mercedes and Airbus and Greenpeace, stuff like that. So I decided, hey, let her be the creative component and let me be the marketing business development component of our little agency and that's 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 been the core of what I've been doing for, for the time since I left Moon Valley. Moving our business model from just building websites to bringing my background into it, which I studied marketing and finance, and I've invested a lot of time and energy in learning how the online game is working. And so our clients are now more on a retainer basis. So they pay us a flat monthly fee to help them drive their bottom line, as opposed to just building a website. Like, hey, what does a website cost? You know, mm-hmm. we're gonna get away from that. So that's been really fun, and, and roughly half of our clients are our golf industry related clients. And by the way, some of the stuff we did, like there's a, there's, there's a website called PGAGolfDay.com. We, we built fundraising websites for 21 sections of the PGA coming up on a couple million dollars that they've raised. and We've done some work with Brendan and, and Little Linksters with their fundraising and, and with their online presence. So John Brown has circled back after eight years or whatever. He retired, he, he built up Brown Golf Management and sold off his shares to his sons and retired last year. And he called me up couple months ago and said, Case, I don't want to be retired anymore. I want to do it all I want to do it again. I wanna I want to build another golf management company and I want you to be part of it. So that was an interesting phone call, you know? And I had a pretty clear day the next day and I decided to drive up to Hilton Head to meet with him and over the weekend he and I and another partner sort of hashed out the details. And we are starting a, a golf management company called KPI Golf Management. We have a meeting on Monday with a second investor. We've raised roughly half the capital that that we want to start with, and we're we're working with uh, another couple of investors trying to get the other half so that we can roll this out in advance of the PGA Show and all that. And. Um, so that's pretty cool for me because I've had this background in golf operations and then this sort of online presence, this online marketing presence that I've been able to develop for myself. And to me, working with John with this golf management company is the, the blend of everything that I'd love to do the most, right? It brings me back closer to, to a little closer to golf than where I was but in a, in the vein of truly trying to help what we're defining as underperforming clubs so clubs that are maybe been around and and just aren't either tapping into opportunities that they see in their in their respective marketplaces or they're just plain out flat out struggling you know and and they need some CPR so that's our that's our market is Clubs that are underperforming, and the basis for that, I, I feel very strongly, and I'll get into sort of this golf industry stuff too, where, and I've, John and I have been doing a lot of research, and and our, our feeling on the golf industry as it stands right now, and, and if you if you think about it, so since the market crash, statistically, golf participation has declined, right? We went from roughly 29 or so million golfers at at the peak to now we're roughly 22 or so, right? Now, this is fascinating because this has all happened despite a a huge economic and generational tailwind since that time. And, And here's what I mean, the market has been like this, right? The market has been awesome. <laughs> Since I got fired at Moon Valley, the market has been doing this, <laughs> right? At the same time, what we're experiencing as far as the generational shift is the baby boomers, okay? So baby boomers are reaching the tail end of their careers. They're retiring they're playing more golf right right they, you know they you know yeah. they're moving into this this phase of their life statistically they're playing baby boomers represent 24 25% it's less than that for population but they're playing more than half the golf so we've got this economic tailwind we've got baby boomers that are really the backbone of the play that is, that is happening with these facilities. And statistically, even despite these circumstances, statistically, and this is based on, I read a lot of Pellucid stuff and um, the National Golf Foundation statistics, things like that. It's, it's pretty clear that there's still a bunch of correction, supply-demand correction, that is required over the coming few years to get us to an equilibrium, meaning the the number of golf courses properly supporting the the amount of play out there, okay? So, we got this good economic condition, we got the baby boomers. As, As the baby boomers start aging out of the game, and if and when, it's more like when a market correction occurs, that's where the big heartburn is gonna happen in in the industry, right? Those two factors, as those start evaporating, what happens to these facilities, what happens to that? And and, and I think those are real challenges that the golf industry has has to confront head on quickly, right? We've got a 10 or 15 year window with these baby boomers where we have to replace them. And the generation, our my generation, following just isn't playing as much golf as they did, right? Like we, we got we got we're working, we're grinding, and we got families, and life is just different than it used to be, right? It's faster paced. We got a lot more going on. It's just hard. I love golf. I would play every day if I could, and I play once every two weeks, you know. And so replacing those baby boomers is a, is a huge challenge in the industry, and a lot of people that are, you know, on their soapboxes. I think they paint a rosy picture that everything's cruising and blowing and going in the industry, and I think that the real, the real picture is more dire. You know, so clubs individually have to strategically figure out how do you how do you market to this younger generation stuff we've all heard about music and golf carts and relaxed dress codes, stuff like that, without sabotaging the yeah. traditional, mm-hmm. older, without upsetting the old guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, Cause, yeah like that's... Because the that's, old guys are your cash cow right now. And they're you gonna you be your cash cow. You cannot alienate those guys. And every course is different. Some courses are gonna have a, a big population, of, you know, senior type players. But man, if you're not thinking about that five, 10, 15 years out, you're gonna be in you're gonna be in rough shape. You're not gonna be around. For yeah. Thirty years. Yeah. So. Yeah, so, so like you. Yeah, not me. I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I'm able to of thirty years. You yeah, Get I'll out of here, right? so, I ten. So guys, think of, think of the skiing industry. Think of the skiing industry thirty years ago. The skiing industry was in the same spot, right? Traditional downhill skiing. Right? Supply and demand, right? It's expensive, it's time consuming. Mm-hmm. Same freaking model. They found snowboarding. And who what the hell does snowboarding do to that industry? Uh, right? Uh, and and it wasn't without friction, right? When it came out, every all the skiers hated snowboarders. They dress like idiots, <laughs> they plow all my snow away, right? <laughs> they hated it. And golf. Has to really, really, you know, think hard about how they're going to handle this, and that's a great example to me, because there is that friction. There's always going to be that friction, and and every situation's a little bit different, and it, it's going to take some strategy. Um, so back to why I think the golf instruction model is broken. That's the, that's the, <laughs> this is this is my big thing. This is my big thing. So, as an instructor, let me, let me rephrase that. As a student, if I'm learning something, I don't want a bunch of information plowed at me all at once and then go a long time period to where I revisit, right? It's much better to have small incremental regular refinements that are digestible. Let me give you an example. If I'm gonna teach you guys, any of you, how to manage a website, right? I'm not gonna have a two hour session with you and talk about how you integrate your lead management with your CRM system. <laughs> Question mark. I'm gonna show you how to change text. <laughs> I'm gonna show you how to make a heading and to make something bold. That's lesson one, and you're going to leave and be like, "Cool, I can manage that." You know what I mean? And then we come back the next day, and I'm going to give you how to do an external link, like highlight the text and link it to somewhere else. And then we're going to talk about moving forward, right? And and you're going to you're going to learn, you're going to evolve, and that's how people learn. Golf lessons are long, an hour long golf lesson. You guys are learning how to teach. An hour-long golf lesson is a lot of space to fill, right? Especially when you just get going. I think inspe- experienced instructors manage that much better. But it's, it's a lot of space to fill. So the tendency is to, and, and by the way, to justify that hour, you're charging a fair amount of money, right? So And that's, that's not a bad thing for people in this room. But I believe that the model was developed for the benefit of the instructors, not the students. So you got an hour-long lesson. Nobody wants to drive out to the golf course for a 15-minute session. None of you guys do, right? You know what I mean? So let's make it an hour so it makes it worth my while. Not for the benefit of the student, right? So that hour is chock full of all kinds of information that instructors are spewing at at students to justify the cost. If somebody's paying me 100 bucks an hour, Intuitively, you want to think, "All right, I need to, I need to give them all the information I know to justify that money that they're they're spending on me, right?" Again, that's back to what's good for me, not for the student. And then what do we do? We say, "Come back next month. <laughs> Come back two months from now." So that student just got a pile of shit that <laughs> 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 they have to figure out. What do I, what do I go with? Try to. Trying to figure out what they work on. Most of them don't even bother working on it at all, right? Mm -hmm. They come back and visit you and it's the same thing all over again. So I I really feel that the the instruction model for most people and especially the two parts of the population that I'm gonna get into that golf facilities need to target to help with this generational shift, fringes. The beginners and the seniors. Guys, here's what I mean. Seniors, they feel like they're hopeless, right? And they feel like, all right, I've been playing a long time. I'm not changing, right? Everybody's heard that before. My dad's the same way. Don't, don't, he doesn't listen to anything I tell him. (laughs) He doesn't care. I got my ways, no big deal. All right, well, what happens when seniors start aging out and they're dealing with physical ailments or maybe maybe their, their hip is sore or they're dealing with these issues? Wouldn't a little help from an instructor serve them best? So how do we work around those issues? How do we extend the amount of time that you're in this game? Rather than aging out now, let's get you another two, three, four years of playing golf, maybe in a slightly different way, what does that do for the facility? Now we're we're actually, we're keeping them around. We're retaining them longer, right? But back to my point, seniors aren't gonna pay a hundred bucks an hour for lessons. <laughs> they just don't. Now the other end, beginners, why should beginner think to pay a hundred dollars an hour when they don't even know if they like the game, right? My contention is that golf lessons are the ultimate, absolute ultimate, ultimate gateway drug for bigger things in golf. That's the gateway. Get them in, get them feeling comfortable, getting to like the game with an instructor, with a human that they like being around, with friends that they like being around, at minimal barriers to entry, minimal cost, and you watch what happens. You plant these seeds for free. okay, In light, digestible increments, Golf courses use this as their marketing tool, and I'm telling you, free. So, as a, as a golf course owner, you contract. So, you're going to be an instructor? No. Who's who's going to be an instructor? You raise your hand, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of salary you want? We're going to pay you. We're going to pay you eighty grand. All right, sounds good. It's no. salary. <laughs> salary. So you're there, forty-five hours a week right normal schedule real world sort of schedule that you can have a life
1: yeah.
0: right we're going to pay you 80 grand or whatever the whatever the salary is and you're given free lessons all day i don't care who it is not members right you're going to do and this is you you're shaking your head this has been done yeah it sounds like a good idea this has been done i'm not talking about traditional lessons here i'm not talking about hour long free lessons i'm talking about 15 or 20 minute light touches, and you have parameters, right? People can't book every minute of your time, right? But you're there, you have a real life, and imagine this circumstance. You're at the grocery store, okay? You're just walking around, and you you run into... Lily. you run run into a friend of, say say an old friend of your wife, or whatever, with her two kids, or whatever. Hey, how you doing? You know, they've never played golf before. Hey, why don't you come out? I'm gonna give you a clinic. I'm gonna show you how to hold the club, how to stand, how to make a few swings. We'll have a great time. Come on out, it's totally free. No strings attached. Like, wouldn't that be a cool marketing tool? Absolutely. Right? Like anybody you run into. Like you're now turning these instructors who are saying, I'm worth 100 bucks an hour. Well, you're not worth 100 bucks an hour if, you're, if, you're, if your time isn't full. If people aren't paying you this and not filling up your schedule, you're not worth 100 bucks an hour, I'm sorry. Right? But you might be worth 80 grand a year if you're going out, spending your time delivering value in the best way possible to the seniors, to the beginners, you could still do hour-long sessions with the core golfers, the ones that want to deep dive into technique, right? But now you're delivering value to the facility. Mm-hmm. You're bringing new blood in, you're retaining old blood. That's why I think golf lessons should be free. That's why I think the model was broken. This is a great idea. Okay. Um, hopefully, that's a little bit of a framework. I think, I think maybe now's a good time we just roll it out to some QA. I think that's always most fruitful. the group you know you've heard my spiel maybe you want to share your stuff or ask me whatever you want yeah please do any questions yeah whatever you got going how do you
1: get your info on um, underperforming uh, private clubs and then what do you what's your spiel when you go in and say hey this is what we can do
0: yeah I'm leaning on my partner for that one. okay John Brown is the turnaround specialist he was uh, recognized by Truman Golf twice back in your day. And, I just left Golf. and Golf. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I plan on being more of a, a sponge in those meetings than I am a quarterback in those mm-hmm. meetings. So although we've talked a lot about that stuff, and, and a lot of it is digging real deep into I can imagine with a private club they keep everything's privileged. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So a, a principle of our company is buy-in. So if okay. if we're gonna if they're gonna have us in the room, they need to buy into the the concept themselves. They have it's self-realization that what they're doing, their current course of action is not is not winning the game. Right. So they they need some help. And if we're in there competing for the business, that's different than. Once we get hired, I suppose, mm-hmm. and now we're all pulling on the same rope, and but with that buy-in, it brings transparency. It brings honesty. Right, right. So uh, generally, the quick wins are digging real deep in the company financials, because even the, even top salaried staff, obviously board members, things like that that are, that are people that are in it part time. They might look at budgets, they might look at expenditures, things like that on a surface level, but very rarely are they digging into the deep, deep details of where these dollars are going, and more importantly, the expenditures that they're making, are they just falling into these deals based on what they've always done in the past, right. or are they truly having their be- their vendors compete for their business, right? So, If you just go with a shirt company or uh, an agronomy, a seed distributor Mm -hmm. or seed company, just because you always have, or buy your greens mowers from Toro, just because you've always done deals with them, and and the the sales rep takes care of you, You're you're right. Rather, what you want to do is get bids from multiple companies and have them compete for your business. Always. And, and those those quick wins and in talking with John it is virtually every time we can we can uncover this stuff and, and deliver quick wins and then you earn trust and then you get into the longer mm-hmm. the longer tail of marketing and and long-term viability right that's an interesting thing that you're bringing up because
1: even on a personal level my wife and I've been trying to cut bills back a little bit and it's amazing when you call the cable Phone provider or your insurance, or whoever, and say, look, we're just trying to figure some stuff out. We're gonna have to cut. Vendors or companies will always work. With them. Yep. But nobody
0: ever asks. It's nope. very rare to ask. It's it's a pain in the butt. Yeah. Or the water. You gotta you gotta you gotta make a bunch of phone calls. you yep. You gotta push the issue, and you gotta hold them to it. And by the way, when you have four bids, you can play them against each other. Absolutely free market. These these guys are giving us this, why don't you do this? Or these guys are not just money, by the way. What about like payment terms or renewal policies, termination policies for your big contracts? Absolutely. And you learn, so especially your big expenditures, you look and you get you get bids, and by the way, you let them all know. Hey man, I know we've been doing, you know, you've been our provider for 10 years but this is the game now. I need you to compete. You're going to be our provider for another 10 years as long as you're still the market. You're, you're gonna earn the business now. And you still have every opportunity. And by the way, in, in the case of a tie, you probably win, but you need to be competing for it. Don't let them get ahead the head. Yeah. Exactly. No, 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 no. And, it's, and it's hard, as in and, and talking with John, his experience, and, and he rolls this out and he, he makes sure, he, he pushes this hard on the staff and again this falls back into buying into the new way of business and you know he, you get pushback on this just because it's a pain in the butt and you know the, the seed vendor before took you to the lightning <laughs> game every year and you kind of like that, um, well that benefits you that's cool you know kudos but it doesn't that doesn't mean that the club should be overpaying for seed because of it, right?
1: And do you offer yourself like, like a one-stop fix, right? Just kind of what your KPI?
0: Exactly. Yeah. So. so um,
1: but do you do you bring other things to the table along with that? Like, do you work with like, say, seed vendors or lawn mowers? Or so when you go in, you already have yeah. a set of distributors in your pocket, and that's part of your pitch because.
0: Do these clubs approach you, or do you just like cold call them? Do you look into? We haven't, we we haven't done any marketing except for building a website to this point. Yeah. We're still narrowing it down, but uh, headhunter uh, John or has John has all these industry relations relationships, and the idea is a management company that's working with five, ten, thirty country clubs can negotiate. More advantageous deals than any standalone facility ever so could. We can leverage ground Management and his relationships really from that side of the house too. Sure. Yeah. So, hey, Absolutely. Right. Yeah, very. I've already got business from Utoro on this stuff. Um, starting new business, but I want that same. Deal. Yeah. More likely, we as a company will also make vendors compete for our business. Exactly. In the same way, but because we represent a bigger book of business, we're able to negotiate. Better deals than any standalone club ever could. And by the way, as the market is tightening and continues to tar- tighten, um, we feel that clubs, unless they're in a unique supply demand circumstance in their own respective market, if they're not operating efficiently and tapping into this sort of stuff, uh, long term they're going to have a hard time competing. You know? Yeah. So, what
1: are your ideas to draw the younger? The, uh, the, uh, the millennials to golf? Uh, do you shorten it, the game, to only six holes? Do you make it more fun? Do you put beer kegs on each green? I mean, what do you what do All you do of it. To... I
0: love beer. <laughs> 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 um, no, I think- um, How do you drive these millennials? Yeah, so there's, there's one is the, the time crunch, you yeah. know, you uh, 10 offering 10 golf, you know, you can market golf as like, hey, here's a, it, yeah. here's a way to experience golf in 90 minutes, right? Come out for a free 15-minute session. Hit a few range balls. Do a three-hole loop. After work, yeah. And drink beer after. That's and that's how I would like. And it. and free, and, and then your first beer free. Whatever, and then they'll drink more. Whatever it is, but you're marketing in a different way than. 18 holes for $75, yeah, right? Four you, know? hours and you don't know what you're doing. You're going to lose 30 golf balls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, it takes forever. And I don't have forever. I don't want to throw 75 bucks at the crowd, especially if I'm bringing my, my two daughters that are going to play two holes and then sit in the cart and watch the iPad. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how can I bring them out there, swat a few balls, go out for a three-hole loop, hit and giggle, and go home in time for dinner? That's... That's how you hit millennials, and so something cheaper, something fast, fast, something easy. Another idea, so I go to Germany every summer. Which part? Right in the middle. No, in the middle of the country. Um, But one thing there, so in Germany, Germany is a very northern latitude, so the days are very, very long. So it gets dark at 11 o'clock at night. Um, maybe 1045 in the summer summer. right now it gets dark at like three (laughs) Um, but there's a private club there and they're nice enough to extend me privileges I can go up and play and I've got groups that I play with and it's really really a fun thing one of the groups that we play with we go up there at 7 in the morning and nobody's in the golf shop nobody's in the golf shop and you can go up there park grab your stuff and go play. And you check in, nobody's there. You go and you check in when you're done. Complete honor system. At the end of the day, same thing. They've got a check-in that's regular business hours. It's not golf pros checking in people. They've got a check-in counter, and they work from like eight to five like everybody else in the world. But these early mornings, evenings, I've, I've finished golf, a round of golf at 1045 before, you know. That means you, you, know, you go play nine holes, you start at nine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Think about that. And there's nobody there. It's awesome. And, but if, if I was a paying customer, <laughs> um, they, they extend it to me. But what I've noticed is people are way more honest if you give them the opportunity than you think. There aren't a bunch of people up there freeloading and you know mooching the system. And nobody that nobody that goes up there wants to be called out as a liar or a cheat or a thief. And people go to this box, there's an envelope, you fill out your name and you you put the money in, and there's probably better ways to do it. It's all cash. But you put it in the lockbox and they know that you played. You think that would work in America? People do that. Yes. yes. I think it would work in imagine this circumstance. Imagine a community. Think of Wakaiva here. Or imagine a a sort of a blue-collar community with a golf course at its core. The community desperately wants to see that golf course survive and stay in business. They desperately don't want to see that golf course turn to tumbleweeds, right? So How how well do you think those people are going to be policing the honesty thing, you know? Um, Nobody's going to want to get called out. And it's only upside, by the way. Even if you get a few freeloaders, big deal. They're playing golf. They might like it enough to come during the daylight hours where they can't cheat the system. But the club is going to bring in some revenue during these off-peak times when they're otherwise not bringing in any. Like, why not? And maybe you can shorten, you, know, you learn over time, hey, this is working, maybe you don't need people in the shop or scrubbing carts so long, right? Here in America, we ride in carts all the time, over there, they don't.
1: But we've got Metro West, that golf course doesn't even have signs because the neighborhood steals them. They don't have signs, they don't have, you know, like the marble things that say, this is a whole one, they don't have any of that. And don't put any it's signs all, I'm saying, that's why I'm like, you know, Maybe, I don't know. You just have to make people in America think they're under surveillance and then they'll follow the rules. Sometimes, yeah. they are.
0: you know what I mean? I, I agree, but I, I think human nature is... I think human, I, I think humans, most humans are better than yes, like people right give us credit for Yeah, they like to do the right thing. I, I agree, and I think surveillance and signage that says don't do this and never do that I think that's assuming, balance,
1: even if
0: out. yeah but that but that's assuming left alone we think you're gonna be you're gonna do the wrong thing.
1: Right.
0: How about deploying a little trust and like that good nature is contagious just like the bad nature is contagious and and I know it works at this club in, in, in Germany and that is true. it's an idea I get that every club is different and, and that's that's the nuances. And try it until you see them, trust them until they can't be trusted. Yep. Yeah, so if, if somebody trusts me to do something, and I'm sure you guys are all the same, the last thing you wanna do is spoil that trust, yeah, absolutely. you know? Uh, you have this privilege to do something and recognize if we all, if we all abuse it, it's gonna go away. Right. And if I'm a dad and I work till five or six, and I get home, and maybe in the summer I can I can sneak out and do the little six-hole walking loop, and once or twice a week, that's how I take in my golf. I'm cool with throwing 20 bucks in the box. <coughs> it is way worth it for me, and I want to keep that. And, you know, if I'm playing with somebody and they're going to cheat the system, and we say, hey, man, why don't you, you know, throw your 20 in there because we want to keep that going. Absolutely. And I, I think I think there are creative solutions out there like that that clubs ought to be deploying to be more accommodating to the end customer. You know? Right. I think instructors can deploy the same thing, you know? Be be accommodating, be customer centric. It's all about what the customer wants, not what's convenient for the club or for the, the staff. business to serve the customers. You watch what happens. I've started a podcast and My mission with the podcast is I am absolutely, and I've already been approached to monetize it. And I am not in one least bit going to monetize or try to make money selling crap on this podcast. It is 100% driven by what my audience is interested in hearing about. So, I've built up an audience online, YouTube followers. My YouTube channel has roughly a million looks and my website traffic, and I've been neglecting them a little bit. So I'm doing a daily podcast where I talk about golf. And I've had people on, I had Brendan on the show the other day, and we talked about junior golf, things like that. But most of it is digestible golf tips. And like today, I gave them a practice blueprint. If you're gonna spend an hour practicing and I do this a couple times a week. You're going to spend an hour, here's some drills, here's how you break down that hour, here's what you go do. And people are responding and people are sharing it and, and they're they're telling other people and my audience is is coming back to me after a couple of years of neglect and and it's growing and it would not do that if they even sniffed the chance that I was going to try to sell them something at the end or push stuff. It's zero zero self-interest it's only because I like it I, I love I don't necessarily enjoy teaching hour-long golf lessons anymore but I do really enjoy helping people at scale it's called golf essentials check it out if you guys want to check it out see what it's all about it check just
1: that interview with LA guy. <laughs> yeah it's the best it's the best
0: inter- best interview and by the way if you guys have questions or you even want to be on it hit me up and we can we can chat and talk some shop but under the under the pretense that it's got to be a value to my audience under not a value to you or me personally you know what i mean it's like hey this is what i think would be a cool subject or maybe you come from a different background or a different part of the world different views on things awesome to talk to you about that stuff so as far as the jobs that you've had at the green grass facilities you mentioned hating the membership director job. I guess I'm curious, like each position you had, what did you like and what didn't you like about them? Yeah, the membership sales position, I'm not opposed to sales. I I, I enjoyed it. It was just that particular circumstance. So I was working at a golf course that was on an island off of an island. (laughs) I had to take a 30-minute ferry ride every day. And if you know Hilton Head, there's a ton of great golf. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. A ton of great golf right and then you got to get on a ferry to go out here to one of the most magical places on the world like it, it is <laughs> no it is what it is it's sensational golf course and the product is absolute the best the the challenge there was there's there was a court there's about 600 members there but like 40 of them Lived on Defusky Island, lived on the island, and they wanted their own private haven. Ultra high-end place here. They wanted their own secluded private haven. The others lived remotely and were sort of roped, they were paying their dues, and the people that were on the island were the ones sitting on the board, and they didn't want a bunch of new members. They didn't want me out there selling memberships. Mm-hmm. So and, and the board meetings were three days long. <laughs> three days. No. So I, yeah, and it was it was a toxic environment, and I, I literally spent half of, I spent two weeks out of every four preparing for my presentation to the board. It was ridiculous. That's it was just not a sustainable thing. So that's why I didn't like membership. Um, all the other stuff I, I liked a lot. Um, Like I said, I liked it because I was working in environments that were positive. Uh, I had people around me like John and others that were supportive of my life and my career and they cared about who I was as a person and man, did that help drive my motivation to perform too, you know, Right. so uh, I'm not crazy about merchandising, I didn't like folding shirts and stuff, but that's just me. <laughs> um, I didn't like working cash registers either, only because I believe that is that is a task that is not ever going to be of value. That's that's something that you can you can Hire you can train an animal to do that. You know what yeah, I mean? Um, you know, in, in fact, they're they're going to train machines to do that. So, Casey, okay, so you got a comment
1: here from a former board member. <laughs> 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 That's
0: all right. I can tell <laughs> you. So, uh, any any other questions, guys? If I wanted to find the thing you were talking about on Facebook, the little the cast, how yep. about I look it up? So okay. the best place to go, guys, is uh, I'll I'll just give you my website. About about uh, golf dot. Not
1: Canadian. Uh, Did you
0: like working for a uh, I hate him. I can't stand him. I will well, not work. I will not work for them again. I I get why they they're successful. They they have um. I I think taken too far, the corporate machine, oh, is, robots is is not good for golf, but. At the same time, golf courses competing and um, running real businesses, the way businesses, real businesses run in, in, in the real world, um, I, I think is overall good for the game. You know, I think golf has always been a little bit of a slow-moving animal. Where we fall back on a lot of, a lot of it is because everybody's so busy. You, you're grinding so hard, you don't have time to lift your head and, and think about other solutions. Uh, I think golf is a a slower-moving animal than a lot of other industries are required to be. But I think it also presents a really good opportunity for underperforming clubs. If if they can be first to market, imagine being first to market in this sort of area, in this 20- or 30-mile radius. You're the first to market with free golf lessons. How cool of a marketing narrative is that?
1: Yeah.
0: Everybody will be talking about your club, coming to your place. If you make it fun and friendly, right? They're going to be drinking your beer, eating your food, playing your golf course. If you're fifth to market, <laughs> nothing. Not so cool, right? So clubs need to get on it. If the biggest, the biggest win is being first to market, and I get that there's. Headaches in thinking about how that could be, but that's where it's going. If I have any say about it, that's where it's going. And I know if John Brown has anything to say about it, it's where it's going too. So, But reach out to me. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely welcoming any of you. Just reach out. If you've got topics that we can cover on the podcast, if it, you think it's going to be cool, I'll just give you a call and we'll chat and. Then you can say, "Hey, I was on this podcast, and now it's now it's. I'll give you the file, and you can take it." And hey, I I want to leave before uh, you guys bug out. How many of you guys have ever consumed Gary Vaynerchuk's comp content? Oh, yeah. You guys know who Gary Vaynerchuk is. Mm-hmm. All right, yes. he's he's my man. That's 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 the guy. He's in my top five list of somebody that I want to play golf with someday. And so I want to. I'm I'm doing I've I've been really absorbing a lot of his stuff and I'm really trying to make a push to do some of the stuff that he's doing and uh, so I've got plans. That's my that's my six or seven year plans to play golf in New York City somewhere, Wingfoot or something with Vaynerchuk, That's my it, thing. Are you a PG thirteen
1: mm-hmm. version of Gary Vanderchuck? Yeah, yeah. No, you look more PG. You got to tell your U.S. Open qualifier story. (laughs) I love that. Sorry, I do. Um,
0: So the best story I have about playing in the U.S. Open was about getting to the tournament, and I tell this story, and I always preface it with, "You wouldn't put this in a movie because it's way too cheesy. (laughs) It's like not believable." You'll bury one movie. It could be. It could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I made it through regional stage, so that's 18 holes, right? I got through that, and the sectional stage was in Summit, New Jersey, a place called Canoe Brook in New Jersey. 36-hole club, great place. And I didn't realize it, but that was the tour site. So that was the site where all the tour guys who were playing in the Buick Invitational, the week before would come out on the Monday and that's where they, they always do that every year to have one that's convenient for the guys that are out on tour that aren't otherwise exempt into the open. So I got there, oh, I, I got my pairing sheet and my parents were not going to bother <laughs> driving from Maine down to New Jersey to watch me scrape it around in 75, <clears> and 76 and be done. So they weren't gonna come until they looked at the pairing sheet. John Daly, Colin Montgomery, and this is back in 04, so, you yeah. know, Mark Brooks, Jeff Sluman, like all these names that they had seen and know. Well, you know, maybe this would be pretty cool. to we'll watch all those other guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, actually, they didn't do that. My dad caddied for me for 36 holes, and my mom walked with me. And so the first round, I went out, played okay, shot 68, and at the tour site, there were like 130 players and they give out more spots. So there was like 14 spots got you into the open, but obviously you're playing seasoned guys. So and I, I went out and shot 68, a couple under or whatever. And I was in like 15th or 16th place and I'm having lunch with my parents. Like, Wow. You know, I always, I always said, all right, we're, we're 36, hole, 36 holes away from playing in the open and now I'm a good 18 holes away from playing in the open. And I was, I had a good day that day. It was just my, you know how it is when you play, you, your, your brain is just on on the right cylinders, you know? I wasn't stressy, I wasn't nervous. And we just got talking about it, cool, cool, and go out on the, on the second round, and I make like a 40 footer for birdie on the first hole. And then I hole out for eagle on the fourth hole. Nice. Like I hold out a of nine eye, full nine eye. And I couldn't help it at that moment thinking I'm in the tournament. <laughs> if I just make a bunch of pars, the bad news is I was on the fourth hole. <laughs> you know? I got a long way to go. And so I made I made a couple pars, a couple birdies, a couple bogeys, and fast forward to like the the 14th hole, I, I three-putted, made a bogey, and I was just too aggressive. I was trying to make it, I was feeling good, and whatever. And so I had four holes left to go, and a par three, and I, I said to my dad, I said, I don't know, you never know where you stand. Um, but I was like one of the last groups of the day, I said, I, I just think maybe make a couple birdies coming in and see what happens. You know, that's all I said to him. And, I parred that par three. The next hole is a good long par four. It's a like 460. Goes up to the left and good tee shot. Hit it up there to like 15 feet. I had a left to right slider and I made that. And and again, like my my brain was. I wish I could bottle that up. You know, I was I was just the right level of confidence and relaxation. You know, and 17. I'm getting the holes. So 16, 17 is uh, a par three, 17 is a par five. I th- figured that was my chance, right? And I had an eight iron in. I must have screwed up to get to that point. But I had an eight iron in, and I hit it up there to like 15 feet, and I missed it. I was a little, a little disappointed. And 18s 18 is 430 par four. It goes out a little bit to the right. I smoke it right down the middle. I had 113 yards to the green. And I remember the number. I pulled out a gap wedge and I hit it up there and it, it landed like two feet to the right of the hole, spun left and lipped out on the back edge of the hole mm. and ended up like that. Like that worked. I I give the club to my dad. I said, that, that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. You know, we got gonna really you know? And uh, it was obvious it was real close. It wasn't wasn't one of those situations yeah. where like you get up there and it's now and We start walking to the green, and we're halfway to the green, we're still out in the fairway, and I hear on the club loudspeaker, all players at 140, meaning the cumulative score, at a score of 140, please report to the driving range to prepare for a playoff. Which is insane. Why would they do that? There's still golfers out on the course. I know they were concerned with darkness, and it was, by the way, a 10-player playoff for one spot. But this putt was for 139. That much. It matters. Oh, man. If it was this much, if it was three feet, how pissed would I have been? You know? so I walked up, they're like, you want to tap that in case? And I said, no, I'm going to mark this one. I'm going to and, uh, but, but standing out there in the fairway with my dad and my mom, I hear the loudspeaker, all players at 140. And my dad didn't know. He's like a 15 handicapper or so. He didn't know where I stood. But I looked at him and I said, we did it, you know? And uh, I'll never forget it. That was. That was the coolest thing, you know. For a skinny kid from Maine, I was on the USGA website as being the, the least qualified player in the whole <laughs> <laughs> I was a long shot of all the long shots. and But, man, if it wasn't a heck of a lot of fun, and I just, I, I, I enjoyed every minute of it. And I, I wish everybody that tries to play or compete a little bit to have, like, that, even even a part of that. You know, that's what
1: we all I mean, That was a bear of a U.S. Open too.
0: Yeah, tell me about it. What <laughs> year was that? What year? Was '04. It? it was at Shinnecock. Oh, yeah. How'd you do? It? That was when they were watering the green yeah. on Sunday, yeah. and the water was like oil rolling off. Like it didn't yeah. absorb. Yeah, I I played that hole in practice rounds, hitting multiple shots. I think I played, or I played four practice rounds. I never and this was even before it got real nasty on the weekend, I never saw a ball from the tee end up and stay on the green. Like we have, I played with guys like Rory Sabatini and Tim Clark and, and I never saw a shot. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was nasty. I was scared. We went out there in the first practice round was with Casey Wittenberg, Brock McKenzie, and um, Kevin Stadler and this was on Sunday before they let all the people in, grandstands everywhere, and like I'm freaked out. And none of us made a par for the first six holes. Like we weren't grinding or anything, but none of us, we, we all looked at each other on the seventh tee, like, I must have made a party, these are like really good players. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what my brain and my heart and my nerves are going to do when all these grandstands fill up with people. I've like, never <coughs> played in that circumstance, ever. I would have been psyched if you gave me a ticket to go watch. And we all looked at it, and I honestly thought that I, if I, if you, you know, when the, when the bell rings, if you freak out, I could set the high score record in this thing. <laughs> 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 that's, a, that's a terrible thought to have. And, and, it, and, it, and it, it cooled down over the practice. The practice rounds were really important for me. Because you know on the day, it was just masses of people. And I loved it. I found that people genuinely wanted good stuff. Especially out of a no-name like me. you know. So.
1: Who won that? Goosen?
0: Yep. One of Mickelson's second place yes. finishes. So. Yeah.
1: All right, Case. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you guys.